Thank you. Please uh, have your seats and turn with me to um, Amos and chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. We are still going through the um, minor prophets, the minor prophets, and uh, we're calling the series Major Lessons in the minor prophets, major lessons in the minor prophets. And uh, I've said before, again, setting the context, these were messages directed to Israel and Judah um, due to their grievous sin of idolatry. It looks like as long as there were sins to do with one another, if I could use the phrase, the second tablet of uh, the law of God, uh, the Lord somehow was still keeping them in the promised land. But when they also began to worship idols, that was a different story. And in due season, they were kicked out of the promised land. We've also seen that the minor prophets can be divided in such a way that a bunch of them deal with warning God's people before they go into, um, the, into captivity. And then you've got a middle section where they are largely addressing the people of God while in captivity, promising them that God would uh, retrieve them and bless them and so on. And then you have the last number of um, the minor prophets that were speaking to Israel, having come back from captivity. And so we've also been looking at that. Now, so far, we have looked at Hosea, we have looked at Joel, and now we are looking at Amos, uh, a shepherd who was then called to become a prophet. And what we saw, first of all, uh, in the, the first two chapters, we saw that God would, in sovereignty, punish all the nations uh, that were going in sin, and especially those that were attacking the people of Israel. But we also saw in that, those two chapters, that Israel was also spoken to that they too would be punished. In fact, a lot more space was allotted to the punishment upon Israel. And then last week, as we looked at chapter 3 and chapter 4, we, we saw God now centering his attention on Israel alone. And he singled them out for discipline and made it abundantly clear that the reason why he was now coming for them was because of his electing love. I've chosen you from all the peoples of the earth, therefore I will punish you. And the application of that was uh, fairly clear. It was the fact that with those of us who are God's people, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not like everybody else at least not in the eyes of God. We are special. And that special aspect is what brings trouble on us when we start living like everybody else. God then comes and disciplines us. He chastises us in this life rather than in the life to come. So that was the application. Now today we are in chapter 5, and chapter 6. And let me own up that it was not deliberate on my part that we are dealing with two chapters at any one time. All I'm doing is trying to sense where the break is so that the next time I come and deal with another section. And it just has been happening up to this point that we are dealing with chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and now chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's not deliberate on my part. 
And what we see in this section is uh, the fact that Amos is telling the people of God what they must do in order to avert the punishment that is coming upon them. What must they do? Or putting it differently, he is saying to them that they need to have genuine repentance from both religious sins and social sins. They need to have genuine repentance because if they do not have genuine repentance, which is what seeking God is all about, then punishment will come. So chapter 5 basically gives that message. Chapter 6 goes on to show that in fact there is no desire whatsoever in the people of Israel to, to urgently seek the Lord. There's, there's no desire. And so in the end, at least by the end of chapter 6, Amos is saying, too bad, disaster must come. So those are two chapters, and I want us to quickly go through them. You will notice that chapter 5 begins with the fact that it's a lamentation. In other words, it's, a, it's a, a song that you sing at a funeral. And those of us who live in Africa, I think we know that. That when we go for funerals, people actually sing songs. And sometimes they sing as if the dead person can hear. They are, they are talking to the dead. I've never forgotten, uh, my mom died, as I've said before, when I was nine years old. And the funeral initially was held in the same home where we currently live. And I, I, we were the children, so we were sort of in the bedroom while people were crying and so on. And I remember some of the people saying to my mother that who now is going to take the children to school? That's a long time ago, well over 50 years ago. But I remember trying to process that, saying, okay, so she's gone. In other words, you know, I won't have a mom bundling us into the car and taking us to the, the funeral. So it's a lamentation. It's words that are normally used when it's too late. It's too late. Someone has already died. And in this particular case, the lamentation, the funeral uh, song, is stating how bad things will be. Look with me quickly at the first three verses here. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel. Forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. And that's a picture of death. It's finished. No doctor is going to get you off the bed. From here, it is the grave. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. That's how bad it is about to be. But thankfully, the God who is our God is not just a God of holiness and justice, is also a God of mercy and love. And that's one thing we should ever be grateful for that the God who sits on the throne of the universe is not just a God who says you've broken the law, you must pay for it, and that's it, but he is one who also then gives an answer about the way to avert this justice. So it is he who's, who comes up with it. Hence the statement there in verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. There it is. It's God himself who is saying it. Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, 
and not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. And so instead of going to these cities looking for help, seek me. I am the one who will avert this crisis from falling upon you. Again, in verse 6 and verse 7, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and he devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. That little phrase at the end is supposed to be that when a person goes to the courts of law, he is looking for relief. But when there is corruption in the courts of law, what ends up happening is that the person comes back even more bitter. It was worse, rather, it was better not to seek recourse to the courts of law. It is worse now because the, the judges are corrupt and in the process they've been bribed and they just make your lives more difficult. So all you who turn justice to wormwood, which is basically bitter, and cast down righteousness to the earth. So even the corrupt judges are being told, there's hope for you. But it is when you repent and turn to the Lord, seek him. What a God. What a gracious God. I mean, think about it. If you, if you can think of anybody who's really offended you, I mean, terribly offended you. Imagine you sending an appeal letter to that person about how they can restore their relationship with you. I mean, obviously you are thinking, no, 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 no. Let the guy go into the fire or something like that. You know, that's the way you feel. But here is a God against whom sin has multiplied, but he is a gracious God, and he is sending word out. And it's not because he's a weak God, which is sometimes the way we human beings do it, because we know that if I get into a fight here, I might be the one to lose. He goes on to speak in verse 8 and 9, who he is. Who is this God that you need to seek? Because ultimately, he is so powerful that you have no hope. Verse 8 and verse 9. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, these are um, families of stars in the sky. Now, even in those days, they knew that whoever has done this must be all-powerful to cast these into the skies like that. Well, today, we know that those are not little things hanging in the sky. Uh, those are, uh, some of them bigger than our own sun. They are just further away. So he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. The point that is being made there is, this is the God who's saying, surrender, come to me. Don't fight because you will lose. You remember the way Jesus spoke to um, Saul, who later on became Paul, when he was going around uh, persecuting the church. And he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the gods? In other words, it's got a sharp end, 
It's made of metal, and then you are with your foot kicking against it. I mean, you're just getting yourself hurt. That's all that's going to happen. But why are you doing it? Stop it, he seems to be saying. But sadly, Israel is as stubborn as anything can ever be. Sadly, as stubborn as anything can ever be. Hence, in verse 10 to verse 13, Amos is saying your stubbornness will cost you a lot. This kicking will cost you a lot. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. So the prophet is now the one who is the target of their enmity. But it's worse. Look at what they are continuing to do. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their vine. So all your efforts at multiplying your wealth in order to live better in the end, sorry, it ain't gonna happen. Why? Well, he gives us the answer, and it's an answer that even today we need to apply to ourselves. And the answer is this. God is an all-seeing God. So whereas we may be hypocritical to other people, you cannot be hypocritical to God. He actually sees all sins. Verse 12 and verse 13. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. God is saying, I see what's happening behind closed doors. I hear what is being said. It is evil and wicked. And then they come out in the open and pretend that they are righteous and godly. They are cheating one another as they are getting bribes from each other in order to afflict and punish and destroy the righteous. And he's saying, you may be cheating the people out there, but you can't cheat me. I see all things. As I said, brethren, this is applicable to us as well. There's no doubt about it. And I'll repeat it when I come to the end of my sermon. Simply the fact that I wish everyone who claims to be a Christian would realize this, that Christianity is not about trying to look godly to other people. No. It's the naked truth about us before God. The naked truth truth about us before God. Because he sees everything. He does. And yes, it might await us on the judgment day, but often with his own people, he wants to deal with us in our lives here on earth. He wants to deal with us. And it can be excruciatingly painful. When God says enough is enough, he opens the wardrobe doors and the skeletons fall out. It's trouble. It's trouble. So let's never forget this. Even Jesus Christ when he was on earth, that's what he said to the people um, around him. He, he, he used these words. He says, beware of the leaven or leaven of the Pharisees. He says, beware of it. 
And out of that, what he simply meant is beware of their hypocrisy. Because as you know, leaven is inside the door, and then you just begin to see its effect on the outside. He said, beware of that. And the real, as he went on to speak, he said, because it is against a God who's able to hear and to see what is said or done in secret behind closed doors. And he says, that's the one you should fear. Because human beings, they can try and do bad things to you, but the moment you die, that's it. You, you've literally escaped their hands. But he says, but with this God, mm -mm. He, he, he doesn't just have things to do with you in this life but also in the life to come. So when you die, you, that's when you actually even fall straight into his hands. And not for the next 40 years. It's for eternity. Literally, for eternity. So, all I'm saying to you, as you are listening to me, is detest hypocrisy. Just detest it. Because in the end, you are the loser. You are. This God who is there, he sees all things. He continued, that is Amos, but this time he is bringing out that seeking God means also seeking good. Seeking God, this vertical relationship that you want to deal with, involves also the horizontal. You, you, you can't be a beast to fellow human beings, and then when you get home, you are seeking God. No, that contradicts itself. You, 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 you cannot be somebody who is unjust and corrupt in day-to-day -day life, and then Monday to, to Saturday, then Sunday you come to the house of worship and then you are worshiping him. We praise you, wonderful God. We glorify your name. You can't. And that's the point that he is making here. He says, <clears throat> beginning with verse 14, Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate that it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So seek God and seek good. Your repentance must be dual dimensional. It must be your vertical, but you must also sort out your interpersonal relationships as well. In your home, in your workplace, in your school, and so on. Let it be evident that here is a person who hates evil. Here is a person who loves good. If you don't do that, this is the disaster. And that's what takes us now across to verse 20. If you don't do that, there's only going to be one consequence. <clears throat> Remember, it's a funeral song. There's only going to be one consequence, and it is this. You will cry. You will cry. You will cry. Verse 16 down to verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, the first statement there, in all the squares there shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards they shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. What does that remind you of? Egypt, when the people of 
Israel were being liberated from Egypt. And God sent Moses to go and say to Israel, let the people go. And Pharaoh said, no, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I will not let Israel go. Instead, make them make even more bricks without straw. And he made the lives of God's people even worse. So he brought one punishment upon another, and this man was continuing in stubbornness, and finally he says, okay, all right. I'm bringing the angel of death. And in every home, one, the firstborn, died. Even among the animals, the firstborn died. Imagine the level of mourning that was there. Imagine. Well, that's exactly what he is trying to bring to their attention here. That that's what is going to happen to you. It's going to be complete disaster. There will be no source of comfort that you're going to find as my punishment comes. Look at the way he puts it, continuing on the same, verse 18 to verse 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Now, the word day of the Lord is different from the Lord's day. The Lord's day refers to the Sabbath, the day of worship, the day of rest. The day of the Lord refers to the day when God now comes in judgment. So it's, it's like a person who is showing off that he's got enough strength to, to sort you out. And then he's, he's told that uh, you are going to come on 5th, um, 5th June. So that's tomorrow now. Okay, yeah, 5th June. And, and so you start saying, hey, hey, hey may 5th June come. <laughs> I'll sort him out. May 5th June come. So Amos is saying, how do you do that? Challenging the Lord, saying, may the day of the Lord come. We'll sort it out. And this is the way he puts it. It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house thinking he has run away from danger and leaned his hand against the wall, and what happens? A serpent bites him. In other words, you know, when you enter a fight with God, th there's no rescue. There's no rescue. Where? Who's going to come in between? Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Basically, the point he's making there is the fact that it will be despair. It will be just crying and mourning to the very end. All that to say, don't play with sin don't play with idolatry. God wants your heart. He wants your everything. And he was not willing to stop halfway with the people of Israel. In fact, the end of chapter 5 is bringing out the fact that God would have preferred that the worship of the people of Israel was just closed down completely. Because it was a mockery to him that these people out there should be living for self and sin and idolatry. And then come the Sabbath, they then come pretending therefore to be sacrificing to the Lord. And so this is the way he puts it in the remainder of this chapter. And, and brethren, again, I know we can be sitting here and sort of learning history. This is what was happened to Israel. And fine, that's part of what is here. We, we need to transport ourselves back into history and see what God was doing and saying to Israel. But we make a grave mistake when we stop there. Because this is for us. 
is for us today. In other words, it's possible that you could be in this building this evening and God is saying, to borrow the words here, how I wish he or she didn't even come. Why? Because he knows how your life is out there. So let's listen to this. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. This morning I was speaking about the, the most famous statement by, um, uh, by Samuel. Um, this statement was made famous by somebody. Anyone? Let justice roll. Yeah, you people are not... Uh, <laughs> Let justice roll. Thank you. Martin Luther King. Yes, yes. That's the phrase that he used uh, in fighting for uh, equality between blacks and whites in America. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In other words, sort out your lives out there. Change out there. Then I'm going to accept your worship in here. You, you can't live like a demon out there and then come in this place and think that I'm going to accept your worship. No. So you are corrupt. You're accepting bribes. You are unjust. And so you've turned the courthouses into wormwood and then you come here. He's saying, no. No. Let instead justice roll down like waters. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness or house of Israel? He's basically saying, look back to those 40 years when you were traveling from Egypt to uh, the promised land. I, I, I wasn't starved. I wasn't saying, guys, look, you know, I really need this. What's going on? And so on. You didn't. I didn't need it off you. You shall take up Sikuth, your king and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And then I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Wow. To imagine God saying, I, I, I don't want your worship. I don't want. Which is what he says in Malachi as well. You remember Malachi chapter 1, when they are bringing blind animals and lame animals and so on. And he says, try giving them to your governor. Let's see if he'll accept them from you. And then he says, oh, that you would shut down the temple doors, that you would extinguish the altar fires. Just, just close down the whole place. Now, I know the Lord accepts us in Christ's name. It's not on our own worth. But still, let's remember that there's such a thing as sanctification, being made more and more holy. And the Lord is dealing with us, each one as individuals out there. How are we responding to his word? How are we responding to his word? Because if we are stubborn and continuing in sin, 
he is saying, why pretend? Because I will soon catch up with you. Why pretend? Chastisement is coming. Discipline is coming. So that's the funeral song. It is basically an appeal that ends with verse 24. And I'm sure you can see that verse 25 to verse 27 is no longer in poetry form. At least I hope that's the way it is in your Bible. So the, the, the funeral song has, so to speak, ended. But that having ended, he still goes on now to argue in just 14 verses now, just 14 verses, about the response by Israel. Are they seeking God? Are they seeking good? God sees what's happening. And sadly, they are at ease in Zion. They are at ease. In other words, their physical wealth because God had blessed the people of Israel in the land that flows with milk and honey. Their physical wealth is making them to be spiritually blunt, to be spiritually asleep. And that's what he speaks about here now. Half, I'll read half of this chapter. So we'll take quite a chunk of it. But I want you to notice this being at ease. Chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. The no notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. In other words, the leaders uh, of the nation. Pass over to Kalne and see and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Or you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? In other words, I've defeated these other nations. What makes you think you, you can escape? But he continues, verse 4. Woe to those, there it is again, who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and cows from the midst of the store. Listen to verse 5. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. Not that there was anything wrong with instruments of music, but that's all they are now doing. Enjoying a time of their lives. They've made their stinking money. The six who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. But listen to this. But are not grieved over the ruin. Of Joseph. They're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry, revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. It's often the truth, isn't it, that when you are most comfortable and your bank account is fat, that's when you least pray. Sadly, when the Lord blesses you, that's when you get further and further away from him. It's been the reality of history that when nations are blessed financially, economically, the peoples stray away from God. But it's equally true in the church that often 
the prayer meetings are filled by the needy, by those who are desperate. They need something from the Lord. Those that God has blessed, it becomes optional extra. Optional extra. It doesn't matter how much you can preach until your head pops off your shoulders. They are enjoying their time. Especially when it's their football team that's playing that afternoon. It's a... Uh, <laughs> forget it. You know, sort of uh, just roast the groundnuts for me. And uh, let's enjoy ourselves on this huge screen in the house that is as big as the wall itself, almost as though the person is sitting in uh, one of the stadiums that is well known in the world. Just let's enjoy ourselves. When actual fact, God is displeased and judgment is, is actually coming. It's coming. It's, it's almost there. But you can't respond. And that's what he is say, talking about here. That verse 3, All you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. is saying, you are pushing the inevitable away and you are lying at ease when disaster is around the corner. Hence, he ends finally by saying, because of this being at ease, God is determined to finally crush this pride. He's coming. And he's coming to crush the pride, the arrogance, as we're seeing this morning. Let's quickly read the last, from verse 8 to verse 14, the last seven verses. And then I will just bring together all the lessons that we've learned. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative the one who anoints him for, for burial shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say, no. And he shall say, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. In other words, it's complete annihilation. Complete. I'm coming to crush the pride of Zion. Verse 11. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments. Literally, little pieces. This great, gigantic building. And the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison. We already saw that and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodibar, the word Lodibar simply means um, no, no wheat. There is basically no food. You rejoice in this place, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Kanaim for ourselves? That's the pride that is there. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. We know that this happened because this, this is history. We know that soon after this, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, came and finished off Israel finished off Judah after uh, Assyria had taken the other ten tribes into captivity. But at this point, they don't know. At this point, 
they are simply saying, no, it, it can't happen. Look, we've got strongholds, we've got fortified cities, we've got a great army, we've made so much money, and so on. Come on! We, 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 disaster isn't coming now. If it's going to come, maybe many years from now, many years from now. And God is saying, watch this space. That's all I say. Watch this space. Well, let me quickly then bring together the lessons that we have seen. First of all, God's love. I mean, what's happening in all these chapters is God continuing to speak, continuing to speak, continuing to speak. And friends, I don't know a single child of God upon whom chastisement has finally fallen. I don't know a single one who ever says I've been taken by surprise. I don't know a single one. The testimony is inevitable that I began to notice the kind of messages that were coming in church. I began to notice the kind of sermons I would turn on the radio, turn on TV, whatever it is, and the, the message that were coming, it was as if God was speaking to me. It was as if and telling me to stop it. God is a God of love. I'm preaching to you here tonight, but you are not a crowd. There's somebody here who is saying, ouch, not again. I, I, I know God is speaking to me. That's love. That's love. That's how far God goes. Before bringing judgment, he says, seek me, seek me, seek good. Seek good so that you might live. And number two, we've already seen this. Bear in mind, God sees everything. Us, we don't. We, we are not prophets. And even those who claim prophets, we've seen that they've been, their predictions have been going haywire. We're not. But God sees all things. So if you are living in stubborn sin, the statement is simple. Stop it. That's it. Stop it before disaster comes. Number three, God abhors the worship that you bring to him if your other life is being lived for self-centeredness and sin. He abhors it. You are actually better off not being in public worship because you are stubbornly continuing in sin. Stubbornly. So when you are now singing about you no know, God's goodness to us, God's goodness to us, God is listening and thinking, but I know where you will go straight after this. I know where you're going. You're going right back into a life of sin. Why don't we just shut this thing up once and for all? Fourthly, we talked about pride in earthly achievements and its tendency to take us away from seeking God. From seeking God. Religion becomes a convenience to us. It's a convenience. We can do pretty well without it because the fridge is full and the bank account is full and we live within a gated community. It's extremely safe. Therefore, why pray? Why study God's word? Why submit to his word? 
why seek holiness and righteousness and Christ-likeness? Why abandon sin? Why I can live a double life? And hence, you continue to abuse your position and your power. The very promotion that God has given to you, you abuse it. You abuse it. And finally, until disaster falls. What a God. A God of mercy and a God who must punish sin. He calls us, therefore, to him that we might live a life on one hand of trust and faith and then on the other of obedience, obeying him. Having faith and therefore seeking to live a life that seeks his glory and at the same time knowing that his word is clear about moral boundaries and therefore I must live according to those moral boundaries. I think it will be a closing hymn. One of the stanzas says, But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we live. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that's all Amos was saying to Israel. Trust and obey. That's it. Seek the Lord and he will truly bless you. That message remains the same up to today for each one of us. Trust and obey. Don't harden your heart. Trust and obey, and you'll see what the Lord will do. Amen.